in May of the year 2000, I had an opportunity to go to Germany. Actually, this was my first overseas speaking engagement. And I spent a little bit of time with George Mueller. Cindy and I went together on that trip. We spent some time with George Mueller and spoke at several different cities in Germany. George was my interpreter, and we were having a great time. We in the, I think the second city that we went to was a city called Dortmund, Germany. It's about halfway between Frankfurt and Amsterdam. Dortmund is a really beautiful city. It's, it reminds me a lot of Portland, Oregon, a lot of, a lot of green, a lot of, a lot of moisture. And with the moisture comes a, a lot of beautiful foliage, and it was just a really wonderful city. And I'll never forget this particular speaking engagement. Sometimes you for, forget incidentals of places that you've been, but I'll never forget this one. Because it was an evangelical free church, really wonderful building, nice, nice people. And uh, my, my topic was Psalm 73, more or less, why did the wicked prosper? It was, we had a great talk. They took up a love offering for me, which I thought was interesting. It wasn't asked for, but they, they took it up. And then at the end of the talk, I asked if there were any questions. Now, you need to picture this. I'm, asking, I'm speaking in English. My friend George Mueller is speaking in German. And I asked if there were any questions. And then we had a few that pertained to the sermon. And finally, there was one lady stood up in the back. And she was livid, to put it mildly. And I could tell by her question that it wasn't, um, she wasn't complimenting me. <laughs> but, but George wouldn't interpret it for me. Ordinarily, he would interpret what they were saying as a win, and then I would, and, and, and I saw George just kind of snipe back at it a little bit. And I said, George, just bear down just a little bit. Won't you let me answer the question? And then I heard a few more things, and I heard the word George Bush and Gary Graham and, and some other word for evil that I recognized from German. And I said, George, tell me what she's saying. Well, George got so animated. Those of you that know George Mueller, he can do that. He got so animated. I never got a chance to inter- an opportunity to interact with this dear, sweet saint, uh, child of the Lord. <laughs> but I do know this. Uh, it got so rowdy in there that, that they forgot to give me or refused to give me the honorarium that they had just <laughs> taken up. I do remember that. <laughs> but her... But her, her, her um, her objection to me had nothing to do with my understanding of Psalm 73 uh, or why the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked prosper. It had nothing to do with that at all. Her objection to me had to do with the fact that I came from Texas in the United States, who at the time the governor of Texas was George W. Bush. This was in while he was running for president. And the state of Texas was about to execute a man by the name of Gary Graham. Now, Gary Graham, some of you remember that. Some of you don't. It became... Uh, a situation that got way out of hand. And the news media worldwide picked it up that Texas was about to execute this man, Gary Graham, simply because of his skin color, simply because he was African-American, which was, which was hardly the case. But I really can't blame her for misunderstanding because that's all she heard from CNN Europe was that the United States was about to execute this man simply because he was black. And then you heard it from others like Jesse Jackson and Reverend Al Sharpton, Bianca Jagger, Mick's ex-wife, Danny Glover, the Black Panther Party, and who knows how many other people kind of gathered together to make this a worldwide cause. What she didn't know was that Graham had over 20 appeals heard by both state and federal courts, and that conviction and the upholding of that conviction went through 33 separate judges. The state of Texas wasn't executing anybody simply because of their skin color. As a matter of fact, they went way beyond that to make sure that nobody was executed wrongly. 
But that really wasn't her point after we got right down to it, or at least after I was told afterward what her point was. Her point was that she didn't believe that a Christian like George Bush or anybody that lived in the state of Texas could possibly allow the execution of anyone just based upon biblical grounds. So her argument wasn't specifically about Gary Graham, and that would have been a poor argument to make, frankly. If she had all the facts, I don't think she would have made it. But her argument was against capital punishment as a principle. Is it valid or is it not? Well, our passage today does have something to say about that issue. Now, there's no doubt at all, let me say this, there's no doubt at all that the Mosaic Law prescribed capital punishment for certain offenses, actually more than just murder, but for certain offenses. But the question that some have is, was that specific only for the period of the Mosaic Age, or does it overflow into our period of church history as well? It's interesting to me how some people become very much dispensational when they discuss this issue, and they're not on any other. But it is, it is a fair question. And one of the places that we get a really clear answer is from Genesis chapter 9. We, we've studied this Genesis, Genesis flood narrative in three parts. And actually, we're past the flood now. We're to the aftermath. But in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, we learn that God will judge rebellion. But he'll honor faithful obedience. He will judge rebellion, but he'll honor faithful obedience. Then in chapter 7, the Lord destroys those who have rebelled against him, but rescues a remnant because of the obedience of one man. Because of the obedience of one man. He will honor the righteous remnant. And here's the question that we left ourselves with that week, the challenge that we're left with from chapter 7. Will we be a part of that righteous remnant? Will we be that one man or that one righteous woman that saves a culture, that saves a generation? Or will we be part of the culture that's part of the problem in the first place? That's the question that we left ourselves with in chapter 7. Then last week in chapter 8, we saw Noah's response to God's rescue and worship forms the pattern for our response as Christians to God's provision of eternal life by grace through faith. So chapters 6, 7, and 8, the flood narrative, and now in chapter 9. The major theological idea of the first 17 verses, now we won't go through all the first 17 today, but the major theological idea of the first 17 verses of this chapter is the establishment of an unconditional covenant that God makes with Noah and with his descendants. The establishment of an unconditional covenant that God will make with Noah and his descendants. And as Genesis unfolds from this point on, the idea of covenant will be central in every section of the biblical narrative. So now we have the Noahic covenant introduced, and you know all about that, the sign of the rainbow and that whole thing. But from this point on in the book of Genesis, every significant section of biblical narrative will have around it somewhere the theme of covenant. So we have it introduced here. Read along with me, if you would, in the first seven verses, our passage for today of the book of Genesis, chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you 
shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I give the green plant or I gave the green plant. Verse 4, only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Key idea. Key validation point. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God is the author, the originator of life. And as such, he places a very high value upon it. In chapter 9, God establishes a new order with the blessing of fruitfulness and the prohibition against taking another person's life and promised by means of a covenant never to destroy every creature again by means of a flood. The rainbow would be a perpetual reminder of this act of grace on God's part. In verse 1, we find once again God blessing an individual. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. The theme of blessing, the blessing of God, is central to the study of Genesis and it's woven through every narrative in the book. Just like the idea of covenant will be woven through every narrative from here on, the idea of blessing is also part of that covenant idea. Adam and Eve received God's blessing, as did Noah, Abraham, Sarah. Ishmael, we don't think of him sometimes, but he was blessed by God. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the blessings and the provisions given to Noah predate the Mosaic Covenant and are therefore universal in scope. The blessings and the covenant that's made with Noah predate the Mosaic Covenant and they are universal in scope, meaning that they pertain to all men at all times. The Noahic covenant was not abrogated by the giving of the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai. It pertains to all men at all times. In verses 1 through 2, God renews the responsibility that was first given to Adam and to Eve to exercise dominion over creation at least partially exercising that dominion by being fruitful and multiplying. This is part of being human. Procreation is part of being human. While the image of God in man was effaced at the fall, it was not erased. So the whole idea of dominion, of Being fruitful and multiplying is tied in with the image of God in man, and that's going to come into view very clearly as we get to the end of our passage today. The way verse 3 is worded, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. The way that 
verse is worded has caused some to deduce that before the Genesis flood, man's diet was entirely vegetarian. And man did not start to eat meat until after the flood. Now, whether or not that concept can be proven is somewhat doubtful. But we do see a clear statement here that it's now acceptable to eat the meat of animals, provided the blood has been drained from it. So it's possible that mankind did not eat any meat before the flood. It's not provable that mankind didn't eat any meat before the flood. But the point is, after the flood, it is perfectly legitimate from a spiritual side to enjoy a nice filet mignon. Now, your doctor may ask you not to do that. Or he may ask you to have the filet instead of the ribeye. Or he may ask you to have the chicken breast without the skin on it in place of the filet. I feel sorry for you if that's the point that you've come to. Or a piece of fish with no oil and no whatever, you know, those kind of things. But I prefer the Hawaiian ribeye at Houston's myself. But, but the point is, there's nothing particular spiritual, particularly spiritual about being a, vegeta- a vegetarian. I tried it for about a week, week and a half. It didn't work for me. But, but I do have friends that are not just vegetarians. They won't eat, they won't eat butter or milk or yogurt or anything that comes from a byproduct of an animal. Now, that's their business if they're doing it for health reasons. It's between them and their doctor or them and their nutritionist or whoever is making that recommendation. That's perfectly fine. And, and frankly, knowing a little bit about nutrition, it's probably not a terribly bad idea to do it every now and then, especially given some of the things that are in the meat nowadays and all that. But that's not the point here. The point here is that it's legitimate for an individual to consume meat post-flood. Whether it was before again, I can't say. The Bible just really doesn't tell us. And I think we sometimes we get wrapped up in issues like that that, that are unanswerable. I would prefer to deal with some of the things that, actually, that the Bible does actually give us an answer for. But there is one provision. Provision, the blood has been drained from it. Now, I was in San Francisco one time with a, a friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Guy Reekman, and another fellow by the name of Bill Esteb, uh, both really great guys. And we, one of them, and there was another gentleman there that was from San Francisco. And so we were able to go out to eat one evening. We went down a bunch of back streets. You would have never found it if you weren't native to San Francisco into this real chic restaurant. It looked like a warehouse, but based upon their price, it's very, very chic. And thank the Lord, it was also very, very dark. Because my friend Guy Reekman ordered his steak blue. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a steak and had it blue, but it just means that it's, they, they put it, they warm one side, they warm the other side, and then they serve it. Now, the reason I'm glad it was dark, because I didn't have to watch him eat that. But I, I would wonder if there wasn't a little blood still in that steak. But aside from that, most of the meat that we eat has been drained of its blood. And it's not just for personal tastes. Some people like sushi. I don't care for it. I like my food cooked when at all possible. But a lot of you like sushi, and that's that's, that's absolutely absolutely fine. But, But the point is here that God is making is much deeper than just a dietary point. I want you to see that. When When he talks about the life and the blood and the blood being drained and the respect that's to be placed upon that, uh, animal that's going to be used for food. That's a key thing here. 
the respect that would be placed upon that part of God's creation that is to be used for food, there's more to it than, um, than just simply how we want our steak prepared. Animal life is not inconsequential to God. Sometimes we, we don't even think about that, but animal life is not inconsequential to God. All that God has created has value to him. Hence the stipulation about the blood of the animal. The seat of animal life is represented by its blood, biblically. That's why in the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant, blood was shed, and the blood was representative of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. In that sacrificial system, which the book of Hebrews says is a shadow of things to come, that shadow becoming a reality in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to earth in space and in time, and was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate, at the request of the Jews or the Pharisees of that time, and paid for our sins on the cross, putting us in the position that if we will just trust him, if we will accept that gift, we could receive eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. So the idea of the shedding of animal blood was representative of what would happen on the cross. But we need to be careful, be be ever so careful, that we not carry this idea beyond that which which was intended and then conclude by inference that it was the literal blood, the literal shedding of blood in Christ's veins that was to purchase our salvation. That's frankly naive and is lacking in theological depth. And there are several major denominations that that hold that. And some of you grew up in in some of them. The church at Rome leans that direction, certainly. But the blood of Christ in the New Testament is a pregnant verbal symbol, according to Kittle in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It's a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross. Yes, his blood, his literal blood was shed when his hands and feet were pierced, but there's more to it than that. It's very unlikely that Jesus bled to death on the cross. He he died of other means. Actually, he gave up his own spirit. But based upon some things that John tells us, it's very unlikely that he bled to death. That's not the point. The point of this passage is, and I, I bring this up because so many times we take little things and we run with them, and we run with them into places that they were never intended for us to go. And this is one of those passages that sometimes people do that with. But the point is, while it was now ordained for humans to eat meat, it should be that it should be remembered that the animals that we consume are a part of God's creation, and the process of preparation and consuming that animal should be remembered, should reflect that. So there should be respect paid. I went to high school with a fellow that was quite odd. And I, I knew he was odd just to play football with him. You could tell just some things he did on the football field were, were a little different. And then everybody knew that he was different when he started doing some really bad things to animals. I mean, he acts of cruelty that, that I don't even want to mention to you because it would really be offensive to your sensibilities. But really, really cruel things. And actually he was arrested for it at one point and deserved to be. And his point was, they're just animals. Well, yeah, they are 
animals, but they're still a part of God's creation. And God places a value on every aspect of his creation. So we need to be careful here. The value of animal life, animal life itself has value before God. But something we need to remember is that life is always subordinate. That value is always subordinate to human life. The Bible makes that clear. But just because it's subordinate to human life doesn't mean that it has no value at all before God. So don't use your Christianity and the fact that mankind has dominion over the animals as an excuse for cruelty to animals. The two don't follow any more than it would follow that as a, as a mom or a dad you have authority over your children so you can abuse your children. Heaven forbid. So just the fact that one has dominion doesn't mean that there's a right to abuse. So there is no biblical mandate that allows for cruelty to animals. I hope you get that. I hope nobody in this church would ever be cruel to an animal. Now that doesn't, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about having the Hawaiian steak down at Houston's this afternoon. Feel free. It's legit. But just realize that animal life does have value before God. It's very legit to consume meat. It'll be part of the mosaic sacrificial system. But don't, don't allow it to follow that you can be cruel to part of God's creation. It just doesn't work that way. It is true that God values the life of the animal. But the animal was not created in God's image. And if that is true, that the animal is not created in the image of God, but God still values the life of the animal, how much more does he value human life that is created in this image? Do you see what he's doing here? When he says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. All, I, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. That's what makes some people think, well, in the past all they could have was vegetation. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your life blood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. What he's saying is that I value, I value animal life because I created it. And if I value, God speaking, if I value animal life that I created, how much more do I value human life, which I not only created, but I created it in my own image. You see how the flow of this passage is working. Before he ever gets to the value of human life, which is the pinnacle of value in God's eyes, he valued it so much that he sent his son to die for us. And he didn't send his son to die for animals. Sorry, but he didn't. He sent his son to die for us. We were created in his image. If he values animals, and they were not created in his image, what makes you think he's going to get, let you get away with cruelty to a human being? See, if he values animals who were not created in his image, surely how much more does he value the life of a human being that was created in his image? And that's what this passage is all about. That's why it flows in this way. Be fruitful and multiply. There's something good about procreation. It's even a part of exercising dominion over creation, apparently. It looks like it. And so he begins the chapter, actually begins this section by saying, be fruitful and multiply. We're going to see in a minute. He ends the same way, be fruitful and multiply. But in the middle, he's going to tell us the value that he places on that human life. But before he does that, he lets us know how much he values all that he's created. Do you see the point? Do you see where he's going? 
I hope you do. It means a lot. That's going to be the point, especially in verse 6. The shedding of blood, in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood. The shedding of blood is representative of the taking of an innocent life. In other words, in our language, we would call that murder. Here, actually, we have the applicational principle first, followed by an explanation or a validation of the principle. Oftentimes, we'll give you the principle, and then at the end of a sermon, we'll make some certain applications. But in this passage, he's making the application first. Don't murder. And then he's going to give us the reason why we ought not to murder, because mankind was created in God's image. Let me see if I can paraphrase this in modern terms. If someone murders a human being, then they shall be put to death or executed by human beings. Why? Because human life is supremely valuable to God as we were created in his image. The first part of the mandate, whoever sheds man's blood, cannot include killing in war or at least the vast majority of situations where there's killing in war, as God himself ordains such action. Now, it is really debatable, if if it it is even debatable. Uh, I'm not sure at all that God even condones cruelty in killing in war. It has to be done sometimes, and God certainly ordains it. But the the person that's on the other end of that bullet has been created in the image of God. That's why we ought to enter into war very slowly. And oh, we need to be so careful because our culture has tried so hard to desensitize us to this principle. I don't want to beat it to death, but you know the whole video game thing. You know where hundreds of people get killed in one round. And they've even got them so graphic now the blood is splattering everywhere. And then, then the... The young person, presumably, who's, who's playing that game, their quarter wears out, and they go have a hamburger and go on about their business. And they've been desensitized as to the value of human life. I read one time, and this was actually more than 20 years ago, so I'm sure the figure is way beyond this now, that by, a time, that by the time a child reaches 12, they've witnessed over 100,000 simulated murders on television. Desensitization. And it's brilliant on Satan's part. You know, we, we see people that take a gun and boom, 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 put a bullet in someone's head, and then they walk away as if nothing had happened, and then they actually joke with people about it later on. They're laughing and having fun. No, sometimes it has to be done. But it should turn our stomachs when we have to do it. It's easy to say, Newcomb. You've got to remember there's a lot of people who are going to be killed in that nuclear attack, some of which may deserve it and others may not. Sometimes it may have to be done. I'm not arguing against the, the nuclear attacks that took place in World War II. I think those that are in a position of authority made the right decision because of the figures that they were given of, of future casualties. But I, I feel certain that those that made that decision, President Truman, I feel certain that it turned his stomach to have to do it. God values all life, and he especially, he supremely values human life, and so we need to do the same. But there are times 
when human life has to be taken. They're not all covered by this verse. A casual read, just even a casual read through the book of Joshua, confirms the idea that there are some times when killing is legitimate. But there are also times when there are extenuating circumstances. And in those extenuating circumstances, there are times when God allows a reduction of the punishment. We see that throughout the Mosaic Law, but he makes it clear, at least in principle, in Exodus chapter 21. You may want to read that sometime. But here's the norm. Before we can go over the extenuating circumstances, or even consider, we've got, to, we've got to come to the norm first. Here's the norm. As far as God is concerned, because he does talk about requiring it, as, God, as far as God is concerned, the crime of murder requires capital punishment. That's the norm. And then after the norm, we can look at why there may be an exception here or may there may be an exception there. And there are sometimes when exceptions occur. Back in the late 90s, somehow, a very famous attorney here in Houston allowed me to be on the jury of a capital murder case. I think he wanted me on the jury because he thought that as a Christian I would not, um, I would not follow the law. The young man involved was 15 at the time he committed the crime. It was a, a crime that was brutal beyond description against someone that was very close to their family. Cold-blooded murder. <clears throat> now, there was an extenuating circumstance, and that's for the state of Texas. That was the man's age. So they weren't seeking the death penalty in that circumstance. They were seeking, uh, I think it was 60 years without parole or, or, or something. And believe me, it was a very brutal case. And had, had I not been the foreman of the jury, it, they, there was a couple that were willing to let him off just because of his age, because he would never be able to attend his high school prom. And I said, well, Mr. Ben Wynn's daughter's not going to have her dad there to send her off for that high school prom. So, so there are extenuating circumstances. And by the way, when I signed the, the form that gave him that 60 years without parole, it turned my stomach even to have to do that. But I did it because it was the right thing to do. And had they asked for the death penalty, I would have given it to them. I left that to the state of Texas. I left that to the district attorney to determine whether they were extenuating circumstances. And my job was to follow the law. And that, uh, that would have caused me, I'm sure, many, 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 many sleepless nights had I had to do that. But you've got to do what's right. And the norm is ca the, the capital punishment is what is prescribed by God for a capital crime. Capital crime being murder. That's the norm. So when a Christian argues against capital punishment in principle on the basis of the Bible, it either reflects a gross lack of biblical knowledge or it reflects perhaps a lack of, pro of a proper interpretive method. But it's here. And not just in the Mosaic Law. That's not going to be our passage today. But you can look through the Mosaic Law and see all kind of crimes that had prescribed for it capital punishment. But this is a universal principle. We're going back before the Mosaic Law to an overarching principle that covers all of human history. Now, the most common argument that Christians sometimes make, or people that want to use the Bible that aren't necessarily Christians, and watch out for that. Sometimes people will. They'll like to pull that out. The most common argument, of course, comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, part of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not kill. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. But the competent Bible student will find the Hebrew term ratzak is better translated murder, assassinate, or slay. 
Almost every modern translation of which I'm aware translate that verse, thou shalt not murder. And they do so rightly. There are a couple of exceptions. The old King James is an exception, but the new King James changed that and, and corrected it from kill to murder. And the Net Bible, the NET Bible, uh, chose the word kill in that translation, but then they give an extended explanation, as they are often do in their footnotes, as to the meaning of the word and the true meaning, meaning murder. Exodus 20.13, then, is a prohibition against murder, and in no way contradicts Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It's a prohibition against murder, which is the intentioned, purposeful taking of an innocent life. And sometimes an individual may take another life, but it's by accident. It's purely by accident. That happens. And certainly there are, both the state of Texas and the Bible allow for extenuating circumstances. But what is being spoken about here is intentioned and purposeful murder, the taking of an innocent life. And there's a second reason, not just the translation of that term, kill into murder, but there's a second reason. One simply has to read on into the next chapter of Exodus, chapter 21, and they'll find God's outline as to when and when not capital punishment should be used. So the objection based upon Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 falls short. And again, some who argue about this recognize these facts, and they go on to argue that capital punishment was a part of the Mosaic Law, but it's not for today. And that misses entirely the fact that the Noahic Covenant predated the Mosaic Covenant by quite a long time, perhaps even a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred years, and that the Mosaic Law did not abrogate the Noahic Covenant. Next week we're going to talk about the promise never to destroy the earth again by means of a flood. That's that's a promise to you and to me. Every time I see a rainbow, I can remember that promise. So, so we understand that that part of the Noahic covenant went on forever. Why would this part not? Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because in the image of God he made man. And we spent a great deal of time in the first portion of our study of Genesis speaking about this image of God. So because we're almost out of time today, I won't, um, I won't dive into that too deeply but this is a timeless principle as well. Man was created in the image of God in the pre-Noahic period. In the Noahic period, man was created in, in the image of God in the period of Moses. And guess what? You're still created in the image of God today. So to argue that this passage in Noah is outdated or that the Mosaic Covenant abrogated it, of course, that doesn't do you much good because it's still in Moses, or to say that, well, now today we live under the law of love that Jesus would have never uh, condoned, uh, capital punishment, is to miss the fact that it is validated by a timeless principle. We believe this because of this. Now, there's way too much out there today that says we believe this and there's no because of this. And that's why a lot of our beliefs, I'm talking about as a culture, are very weak, because we've got nothing to validate those beliefs. But here, Moses, is the narrator, narrator speaking for God, gives a validation for the fact of of capital punishment for the crime of murder because we were created in God's image, which is, of course, timeless as well. 
obviously, the sentence of execution of individual should never be implemented without a fair trial and without a careful review. Never be implemented without a fair trial and without a careful review. No one wants to make a mistake here. And I don't know then-Governor Bush or former President Bush personally, but I would bet everything I have on it that he didn't go in intentioned on executing an innocent man. Nobody wants to do that. Anybody that, has, that would say something such as that has never been involved at any level with the process. At any level with the process. No one wants to make a mistake, but the principle stands. One of the pleasures I had in seminary, and, and my friend Paul did too, was to serve as an intern for Robert Leitner. We were his last interns, and we joked that you know, maybe there's a reason he retired after we were there. We gave, But I think he liked this. He says he doesn't, but I think he did. And one day I remember coming to his office, and, and he was in a very sober mood. He's a fairly sober guy anyway, but he, he was in a real sober mood. And I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I've been working with this gentleman that's on death row. Uh, down in Huntsville. And he said, uh, tomorrow night, which was a Wednesday night, he said, I'm, I'm to go down there at the request of the family, and I'm to witness the execution on behalf of the mother. And he started to tell me how he came to be in that position, and actually it's, it's an interesting account. I'll just give you the, the short of it. This man had undergone a, a divorce up, I think, in the state of Minnesota. He wasn't real happy with how the divorce proceedings went. So he got in his car and he came down to, I believe it was Fort Worth. And uh, as a judge and his aide were coming out of the courtroom, just randomly picked a judge and mur murdered him. Um, Cold-blooded murder, perhaps you remember that. And this man, of course, was immediately arrested and he had a, a trial and he was convicted and, and went through all the appeals and so forth. The way Dr. Leitner got involved was in the past, he had been the interim pastor of the church where that man's mother attended. And after that man was convicted of murder, everybody in that church shunned the mother of that man. Now, that's wrong on a lot of different levels. But that's how Dr. Leitner came to be involved in the situation. And she says, I've got nobody. I don't have a church anymore. And I know you used to be my pastor here as an interim is there any way you would go down and talk to my son? Give him, make, make sure he's a Christian before he is executed. Is there any way you would go view the execution? I can't do it. As a mother, she said, I can't do it. So Leitner went down there. And he, before he went down, he did talk to the widow of the judge, who was a Christian. The judge was a Christian as well. And the widow of the judge said, make sure that he understands that I forgive him. Make sure he understands that. And please make sure that this man gets the gospel before he's executed. Leitner was in tears when he's telling me this. It, it, it broke his heart. It had to be done. But it broke his heart. He went down and visited with the man all day long. The man never would. Um, the man said, I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven. Uh, never expressed any remorse for the crime at all. 
And then I guess if they're going to execute you about 10 o'clock, they, all visitors have to leave by 6. At least that's the way he, he said his was. The mother and the sister were at a hotel. Dr. Leitner was in the cell with the man. And uh, finally, right before the man, right before Dr. Leitner had to leave, he, the man did turn and say, would you tell the widow I'm sorry? I never should have done that. Well, then Dr. Leitner waited, and then he came back, and I guess they have you wait behind a glass to witness the execution, uh, which he did uh, later on that evening, about 10 o'clock. Then he drove back to Dallas. I saw him the next day, and he was worn out, not just physically, but emotionally. Now, Dr. Leitner was here today. Hopefully he'll be here in November for his normal visit, but if he was here today, he, he would take you to this passage, and he would very ably demonstrate that if someone takes an innocent life in this way, that God prescribes this punishment. But it turned his stomach to have to watch the execution. God values all life. We need to be real careful about being flippant with this. It is God's mandate. I hope I've made the point. Finally, in this passage, after establishing the mandate regarding the sanctity of human life and the penalty for taking it unlawfully, Noah is told, again, to be fruitful and multiply. You, you see that in verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Go back to verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said, then be fruitful and multiply. You see, we're talking about the sanctity of life and how important it is to God. So it's, it's book-ended. So this section, verses 1 through 7, began the, that way with a command to be fruitful and multiply. It ends with the same exhortation in contrast to murder. They were to multiply and populate the earth. Heavenly Father, these are sobering issues. We understand the value that you place on human life. We also understand the value you place on animal life and, and we thank you that you've you've given us all these things to consume for our nourishment. But help us to do it in a way that's proper, never with any cruelty. And help us to value every single human being, the life of every single human being as we have all been created in your image. Help us to do what's right when it's necessary. But but Father Help us to do the right thing in the right way. All these things we'll ask in Jesus' name. Amen.